Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say, life is better in flip-flops. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on vacation, put your feet up and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise resort, riverboat and adventure vacations. So you can kiss who you want to kiss without a care in the world. You've never felt relaxation like this. Discover Olivia for yourself at olivia.com or through the link in our show notes and save $100 on your next Olivia booking when you use promo code CRUISING. So can you explain what just happened? Oh, God. Well, okay, so we went to Doc Marie's today. Social media now knows that we were at Doc Marie's. Because Doc Marie's shared a photo on their story. That's literally all social media knows, is that we were there. Um, (laughs) And that we're in Portland. It's December of 2022. We're at a Portland Airbnb after a long day of collecting tape for cruising. I'll let Rachel continue the story. They're just, they're coming for us. We're just getting messages on Instagram and comments on TikTok from people who are upset that we went to Doc Marie's and that we're covering Doc Marie's. Doc Marie's is Portland's newest lesbian bar. They first opened on July 1st of 2022 for one night. There was a lot of controversy surrounding the opening, much of which played out on the internet, as it's continuing to now. So can you read what what the person said? Like, Yeah, so this person, who is going to remain nameless, Mm -hmm. um, sent us a number of screenshots of posts from the Marie Equi Workers Collective. The Marie Equi Workers Collective is a group of former employees of Doc Marie's, all of whom worked opening night and subsequently quit. So this person sent us those screenshots and a bunch of messages, and we wrote back saying, thank you for your message. We're aware, and we've been following these Instagram accounts. We appreciate you reaching out. Cruising is deeply committed to objective and unbiased journalism. When it comes to Doc Marie's, as with all bars we cover, we actively seek out all perspectives. If you or anyone you know has firsthand experience with Doc Marie's and would be open to sharing with us, we would love to connect. Thanks again, Sarah, Rachel, and Jen. This person's response to that message was, oh, word, y'all already knew and you went there anyways. Never mind. LMAO. And then they blocked us. <laughs> so, again, it's like they're upset that we were at Doc Marie's, like that we're talking to people that still work at Doc Marie's. Like, I feel like there's an assumption being made that because we're going there, we're on their side. And it's just, like, that's not what we're saying. Like, we're saying, like, we want to cover what you're talking about. And you blocked us? We'd reached out to the Marie Equi Workers Collective shortly after they created their Instagram account and started posting about Doc Marie's. At this point in time, we had been able to interview one person from the group, but we were still searching for more voices and more information. Now, nearly six months after Doc Marie's initial opening, we're in town to visit the bar, interview their current staff, and try to connect with former staff members, much to the dismay of a handful of people on the internet. We genuinely, we so genuinely want nothing more than to talk to more people that have firsthand accounts of kind of what happened and when they Doc Marie's like first open. opening night that I think everyone will agree, including the 
folks that are like still at Doc Marie's, like it didn't go smoothly and like there were things that needed to be worked on and fixed. Yeah. You genuinely like have been trying and haven't had a ton of success so far, like finding people to talk to. But as it turned out, none of the people messaging us were actually from the Marie Acquis Workers Collective, nor had they ever been to Doc Marie's. They were simply concerned members of the community. Honestly, what might be the craziest thing about like this this mentality or whatever is that this is the same person among many other people who are very, very angry that Doc Marie's has their comments turned off on Instagram. (laughs) So I would just like to ask, like, how is blocking someone who is trying to, like, engage in productive conversation any different from turning off your comments? Yeah. Like... It's not. You're engaging in the same behavior because you don't like what's being said. Right. And also... We're not harassing you. Yeah, that's also true. We're not <laughs> harassing you. We're literally responding we're literally to thanking your... <laughs> you. We're saying like thank you for reaching out to <laughs> us. For reaching out to us. <laughs> We'd love to talk more. I know. So I yeah, I don't know. This is cruising podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and this season, we're taking you to lesbian bars past and present. This is Doc Marie's. How long have you lived? My whole life. Cool. Yeah. Born and raised. This is Andrene. She was bartending at Doc Marie's when we visited Portland and ended up being the perfect person to talk to about the makeup of the city. My family is Black, and so most of Portland used to be Black and brown. And then uh, growing up and then high school, everything sort of changed and a lot of people got pushed out, gentrification. And so very much now it is a white city, primarily. So when you were growing up, it wasn't? No. When you were younger? Mm-mm. So did you personally know of people that got pushed out? Yeah, definitely my family. Um, we used to um, own property in like Northeast and um, live, all my family lived sort of on the east side where we are now. And a lot of them now live like out in Gresham because it's more affordable, which is far out east of Portland. Uh, a lot of them live in Clackamas or even Vancouver, Washington. And so it just kind of like spider webbed and split. Wow. But yeah. So you had a big family, like all in sort of the same area. Yeah. And that is not the case. Mm-mm. That's okay. I mean, it's a short drive between, but even with friends, I mean, rent kind of just went up a lot and, you know, they put a Whole Foods right next to you know, a place of town that people didn't usually go to. And then all of a sudden you see this new apartment building and then you see this. And even like my hair shop was the last owned black business on Alberta. And then they bought the building and then sold it and they kicked them out. And so I got to like drive a little bit to get my hair done. But I mean, just speaking from my personal experience and my family's experience, that's just what kind of happened. It's it's sort of funny because you'll 
you'll hear of like, oh, yeah, I was went and got coffee and went shopping on Northeast Killingsworth. And I'm like, Northeast Killingsworth? Like, I'm like, nobody, you know, I never was not allowed to walk on that street. You know, I'm just like, oh, there's a Whole Foods over there now. Oh, there's a coffee shop. Oh, okay. Which is nice because I like the expansion of small businesses. Portland has so many small businesses, which I love. But, um, it, you know, it's a toss up. It's a trade off because you have that and then you want people to move in. But then you kind of lose a little bit of um, lower income yeah. communities and things that would generally be more affordable that kind of get pushed out. So, For all of Andrene's adult life, Portland had never had a lesbian bar. Most recently, a bar called The Egyptian Room closed back in 2010. And so Andrene, along with much of the Portland queer community, was excited to learn about Doc Marie's. I saw an article posted online that Portland was getting their very first lesbian bar. And I had actually just went to New York for the first time, um, right before, about a month before they opened. And I visited my first lesbian bar, um, Cubby Hole and Henrietta's. And I was like, I wish Portland had a space like this. I was super stoked. So stoked, she wanted to be a part of it. I DM'd Doc Marie's Instagram and I was like, can I work here? And then, yeah, that's how it all started. So Andrene was hired after the initial round of staff quit, but she didn't take her predecessor's concerns lightly. I was very adamant about making sure that this was a safe space for me, especially as someone who is a person of color. And also, I, you know, I'm putting myself out there and I'm working here. I want to make sure that I am working for the right people and that I am safe at work. And so um, during my interview process, I asked a lot of questions and Olga was very... The owner of Doc Marie's. Very informative, very honest, and just open about everything. And so um, I built a lot of trust through that and was like, all right, cool. I do want to work here. Let's go. I'm sure your mind is racing about this initial team of staff members. Who were they? Why did they quit? What happened with that initial July 1st opening? It all started the way Andrene's story started, with excitement about a lesbian bar in Portland. Um, I felt like not worthy <laughs> just in terms of like, oh my gosh, like we're so happy. Like there's a lesbian bar. Like, am I lesbian enough for that? Like I felt like it was a really awesome, you know, an amazing opportunity. This is Brandy Fight, the original Doc Marie's bar manager. She was hired in May of 2022, two months prior to the bar's initial opening. I've lived in Portland for 14 years and been in the food service industry the entire time. I've been on the opening team or been the opening bar manager for before Doc Marie's. It was seven um, new bars or restaurants, um, one comedy club. So I knew what it was going to take. Um, it's a lot of work. And typically people that have helped open uh, been on an opening team of even like two new restaurants or bars are just always like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. Like I can't open another place. Um, but obviously this was way different. Um, the fact that it was a lesbian bar. I just kept hearing everywhere I went, Portland needs a lesbian bar. Why is there no lesbian bar? Which we were in a lesbian bar right now, you know. And this is Olga Bichko, the owner of Doc Marie's. That just kind of added up. And I was like, why isn't there a lesbian bar in Portland? Seems like exactly the kind of place that should exist here. Before landing in Portland or even the U.S., 
Olga was born in Latvia. It was still the Soviet Union at the time. So my family and I are Russian-Ukrainian. So Russian's my first language. We lived in a the kind of typical, what you might imagine, I guess, um, if you know anything about Soviet Union experience. I live in a two-bedroom apartment with me and my brother, my parents, and my grandparents, which I loved. I thought, I thought that was awesome. <laughs> um, as a kid, bunk beds in the hallways seems great. When Olga was seven, she moved to the United States with her brother, Dimitri, and their parents. My dad is a scientist, and that was how we were able to come originally. Um, he got a job in a lab here. Yeah, he supported the family on a tiny salary for a while. And then we arrived. I remember like small things that blew my mind were things like wall-to-wall carpeting. I was like, that's crazy. That's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I was lucky because kids are super adaptable. So seven's a great age to come. It was just kind of like all of a sudden, I did not know English before, but learned it, you know, very, very quickly and easily because just being a kid on the playground will, will go a long way at that age. Um, and it's funny, you know, I don't, I don't speak with an accent because of the timing of when we arrived. My brother's five years older and he has a noticeable accent when he speaks. So it's just one of those interesting things of like visible versus not visible identities, you know, like we had the same experience coming, but our assimilation experience is different. And so it is always makes me think like, I always just have to explain where I'm from, explain that, you know, I'm not, I'm not born here. Olga and her brother, Dimitri, have always been extremely close. The first person that I came out to was my brother. And I think before I even fully wrapped my head around it, I just called my brother. And I literally was like, I have news, I think, or something to that effect. And I was kind of freaking out a little bit. And he was like, what is it? And I was like, "Um, it's about like dating. And he was like, women? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he was like, awesome. And so he really gave me the absolute best coming out moment that I could possibly have because it was not just accepting, but celebratory. He was like, yeah, fuck yeah. And I was like, what? Yes, this is amazing. So I feel like I'm very lucky in that way. Today, Dimitri is Olga's business partner and the chief financial investor in the bar. We started talking about it, but it always wanted to do something, um, something that mattered, you know, and something that was consequential and something that gave something to people. And I was like, do you want to open a lesbian bar? And he was like, yes, (laughs) that is exactly what I want to do. And I was like, awesome. And I think it's, it's such a beautiful example of true allyship, right? Like you have someone you love, they have something that they're passionate about that you can genuinely help and put resources towards and make a difference. But neither of them had any business ownership experience, let alone experience opening and running a bar. We're brand new to the industry. So we were absolutely, you know, in the throes of a huge learning curve of what it takes to open, manage, and run an establishment. We knew that going in. And so, you know, we very much were looking to rely on people who had a lot of experience in the industry. And we're very open with that in our hiring. 
Olga hired Brandy as bar manager alongside a second salaried kitchen manager. We won't be using this manager's name because she doesn't want to be part of the podcast. At first, it seemed like things were off to a good start. One thing that really stuck out to me in a positive way was that, you know, Olga saying, hey, I don't have any experience in this field. So therefore, <laughs> um, I'm really willing to listen to to you and uh, your the kitchen manager because you are the ones with all the experience. So I thought that was huge. Um, and I kind of thought that that was everything I needed to hear. I was like, oh, great. Like that's, you are coming at this with, uh, you know, open mind and really one, you know, deferring to the people who know, who do have the experience. But what I didn't anticipate or question really was their effort that they were willing to put in, like the work, the effort, and then just physically being there. And things weren't working out from Olga's perspective either. Unfortunately, we did not hire the right people for the job. There were two people that we leaned on and expected to lean on, and those were the ones that ended up quitting after opening night. If you're a queer on the internet, you might have heard some version of the Doc Marie story. But that doesn't mean you know what really happened. There was a lot of misinformation and false allegations swirling on social media, most of which didn't come from anyone you'll hear from in this episode. But we've spent the last year plus researching the facts of this story, at the heart of which lies unmet expectations. From Brandy and the kitchen manager's perspective, Olga was not as physically present in the day-to-day operations as they'd expected. In terms of what we ended up doing that was, you know, that we assumed would be on Olga was things to do with like contracts, just the technology that's like, you know, essentially a whole day just to set up the computers, Um, garbage collection, contracts with dishwashers, ice makers, getting paperwork and um, like permits. There was support, but it was minimal. And you don't feel supported at all when you have minimal support. At the time, though, Olga had a full-time job in professional development at Portland State. That's really what was keeping her from the bar. I was there as much as I possibly could be. So we had originally more people on our, like on the ownership team. Um, And so both me and my brother had full-time other jobs and the other two people were supposed to take on a lot of the legwork and the, you know, daily stuff like that. Neither of those people ended up working out uh, really quickly. And so my brother and I found ourselves in a position where we had to make it work and pivot and do what we could. And so I was basically just 24 seven trying to make my other job work and focusing as much as I could on the bar. And that was completely unsustainable and not fair to a lot of people, obviously. While Olga acknowledges her other job made it impossible to give the bar her undivided attention, she also had an expectation that she was going to be able to rely on these two salaried employees to do the bulk of the work of getting the bar open. Of course, it's entirely subjective how much time an owner should spend in their bar. So we asked an expert. 
That's a hard question to answer. This is Ken Batali, owner of Batali Associates, a hospitality consulting company serving Portland. If they're not an active owner or, or they're, it's just an investment situation, they could spend very little time there to, to being there every day. And it really depends on the person and their objectives and and what they want the place to be. They could be there all the time or they could check in once a week. I, I've seen every every variation of that. But we bring this up because Olga's schedule is what created a lot of the tension that eventually reached a boiling point on opening night. According to Brandy, none of this went unaddressed at the time. So we did pull Olga and the main investor, her brother, Dimitri, aside and spoke to both of them and were like, hey, we um, really feel that we've been doing more than what is expected. We want you here more and we want your help more. Um, There was, you know, the question of, okay, well, what do you want? Like, tell us what you like, what are the three things? And we were like, here, one, two, three. And, you know, one of them was sealing the floors. Let's get into sealing the floors for a second, because this was a big safety concern for Brandy and the kitchen manager. It was a dog water bowl. That's how we discovered it. <laughs> it was like a dog water bowl got kicked over when we were in the space. And all of a sudden it's leaking downstairs um, in a there's like a really large booth where customers are going to sit. And we're like, oh, that's a huge problem because that amount of water that was like two cups of water. We're like, that's a pint of beer, beer spills in bars. Um, And so it's and it's not just like, oh, there's, you know, water leaking from the ceiling. It's like you have to think about what is in between the floor and the ceiling of a building that is that old. You were not meant to eat, you know, to eat off the floor uh, or, but like, we're certainly not supposed to be like serving drinks have been um, filtered through whatever is living uh, in, in between the subfloor of upstairs and the ceiling of the basement. So resealing the floors is one of a handful of things the managers delegated to Olga at that initial meeting. Brandy says that's basically where they left the conversation. And then the following day, uh, the kitchen manager and I had a direct deposit of $1,500 um, in our each of our accounts. They were like, you've done, you know, you have done more than what, you know, we expected. Uh, so here, you know, I would have wanted it to be negotiated or agreed upon or just some sort of plan of action. Like, okay, well, so when we do need your help or we need your response or we need this action item from you that we can't do because we are not the owners of this space, um, there was not a plan set up for that. But this is one of a few times the managers went to Olga with a concern and Olga was responsive. For example, she raised the kitchen manager's salary to match the bar manager's salary as soon as it was brought to her attention that they would be performing similar duties. I just said, hey, you know, uh, I think our salaries need to be the same. And she was like, "Okay." like the meeting went so unexpected. And as Olga mentioned, her and her brother were initially working with two other owners. But when the managers raised concerns about the other partner's conduct, she cut all professional ties. But none of that changed the fact that Brandy and the kitchen manager continued to feel like they were going above and beyond their job descriptions. In my experience with 
what we did, we should have had some level of ownership. And we even got to a conversation about that. Again, they brought this to Olga and Dimitri's attention. They were open to it. This conversation happened very close to the opening. I wanted to invest in the ownership of that bar being that it was a lesbian bar. But I didn't feel confident about being on an ownership team with the existing ownership team, which at that point was Olga and Dimitri. And now Brandy had another grievance with Olga, whose focus on the opening was being pulled in yet another direction. A huge part of also what Olga focused on from before opening um, to opening was the documentary. We were shooting a documentary, um, kind of capturing all of the work leading up to the opening and kind of all of our journey. It was was, uh, someone who is a filmmaker here in the community that was really excited about us coming and, and opening up a lesbian bar. It read like a scene from The Office, honest to God. This is a former staff member we interviewed from the opening team. They prefer to use a pseudonym, so we'll call them Anna. Anna remembers Olga and the documentary crew filming around the bar on one of the days leading up to opening. We were literally carrying multiple chairs and tables up and down wooden stairs and like hauling ass. And Olga was like pinning up pride flags and getting multiple shots of her like tacking on the the pride flags. It was comical. With less than two weeks to open, staff training had begun. But due to continued maintenance in the bar areas, Brandy wasn't able to physically train staff behind the bar as she'd planned. She also wasn't able to train them on the computers. There was issues with, like, the POS because we didn't have that negotiated, paid for, and signed for. So the installation was pushed way back to, like, the day before, day of. Nobody got experience training on the POS. A little background if you're not a restaurant person. POS stands for point of sale, and it's the computer system used to ring in orders, cash out checks, and so on. As someone who has worked in restaurants, to open with an entire staff untrained on this sounds like a recipe for disaster. I think eight to ten hours of POS training is the minimum for a restaurant or a bar before they open. Take Ken Batali's word for it if you don't believe me. My reaction is they're not going to have a very good opening. Service is going to be slow. The service staff is going to be frustrated because the customers are going to get frustrated. Olga had left the timeline for opening entirely in the hands of the managers. And at this point, they'd already pushed it back twice. The owners weren't putting much pressure on us to get open. The pressure really was coming from making sure the people that we'd hired and promised would be open at a certain time would be earning their tips. And that's most of service industry, like person's income. Um, And then also just the pressure that came from just the city. People excited about it. It's actually relatively common for new bars and restaurants to have to postpone their official opening dates. None of the openings that I've been a part of have been like... There's no by the book. I've worked with a lot of reputable companies. They're experienced. 
chefs or bar managers or bartenders or restaurant owners. And, you know, it's just a lot can happen. Here's our hospitality expert, Ken, again. I think it's really a risk for an establishment to set a hard opening date, gosh, more than 30 or 45 days out. And even that can get shaky. You have something that doesn't pass an inspection, just something stupid. Well, they're not going to come back for a week uh, to to reinspect. You know, there's just so many things that come together in the last couple of weeks and the last 45 days, any one of which could push your, push your opening date. For example, at Doc Marie's, there were leaks in both the upstairs and downstairs sinks that had to be partially fixed by a plumber the day before opening and partially patched back together by the managers. On top of that, the floors still hadn't been resealed, which was a big concern for Brandy, both for safety reasons and for her working relationship with Olga. Even if you're not willing to listen to our advice and you think that this is not going to be something that's important and we... I know for a fact that there was at least two weeks of notice uh, that we'd given plus. And so it was something that was promised to us by Olga and Dimitri that would get done. Um, and it just didn't get done. Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say. Life is short and the world is wide. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on an adventure, have some fun and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise, resort, riverboat and adventure vacations so you can zipline or scuba dive knowing you're with your own community. Discover Olivia for yourself at Olivia.com or through the link in our show notes. Save $100 on your next Olivia booking with promo code CRUISING. July 1st rolls around, and come 6 p.m., the doors of Doc Marie's open for the first time. There had been a lot of buzz in the community about Portland's new lesbian bar. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was like, oh my God, we're getting a lesbian bar in Portland. You know, there's lots of gay establishments, but there's none that are supposed to be more catered towards lesbians. And so, you know, everybody in my friend group, everybody was talking about it. Everybody was just really excited and being like, when is it opening? This is Robin. She lives in Portland and attended opening night of Doc Marie's with her friend. My friend Mandy and I waited an hour and a half in line to get in, but it was fine. We're chatting with other people in line, like further down where there was big groups of people. People are just partying. So it was a fun atmosphere and everybody was like excited. I mean, there were some people mildly annoyed. I'm not a big wait in line person, but I'm like, I'm here. I want to be one of the first to be in, you know, the new lesbian bar the first night. You know, I was pumped. I was like excited, you know, and I kept seeing people I knew and like Mandy and I would take turns and go down the line and go like talk to other people. So it was just like a fun, chatty atmosphere. Once inside. I think the business was just unprepared for really what they were going to get. There was so many people. I used to be in the bar and, and restaurant industry, so I know how things are. And like the employees didn't really have a handle on the POS system. There was a pipe that was like leaking, like it dripped on me. It was just like off the side to the booth, but I mean, whatever, <laughs> you know? And then the stairs needed traction. There was just like little things that after kind of after a grand opening, you're going to realize, oh, wow, okay, I need to do this. I need to do this, this, this. So, 
I didn't have a problem with them at all. We've talked to a number of other people who attended opening and experienced similar issues. Long lines to get into the bar, long lines to get a drink, and water where it shouldn't have been. At one point in the night, a fight broke out between patrons in the bar. One person was bleeding, and staff reported hearing another using the N-word. Here's Brandy. Opening, it just felt like uh, anything that could go wrong will. And that was my breaking point. Opening night was by no means seamless, but from Olga's perspective, it was still a success. There were no, you know, huge disasters on opening night. I know that that's been painted in a different picture online, but the reality is that a huge number of people turned out. It was absolutely amazing. Like people that came had a great time. There were some flaws that things were not optimally working, which I think is really to be expected with a brand new bar and hundreds and hundreds of people in it. The morning after opening, Brandy and the kitchen manager called a meeting at the bar with Olga and Dimitri, at the end of which they both quit. Basically, like, I brought these grievances to her. You know, that was the first thing that I wanted to talk to her about face to face the next day. It was the floor not being sealed. Uh, It was just the safety issues that had happened with like the flooding and just feeling as though no efforts were made. All I could say was like there was no concern whatsoever that evening. She just had like so downplayed everything. Um, And she did not seem to think that any of those things were a problem and it just felt like she was talking about these like smaller, like, cause there was plenty of smaller kinks that happened throughout the night, but it was like, these aren't small kinks. I was like, Hey, so that's not any of what I wanted to hear. And you've had enough time in my opinion. And like, there's no way for me to go above and beyond you, um, in handling like these matters. So I can't, I can't be here. Later that day, Brandy and the kitchen manager met up with the rest of the opening staff to explain they had resigned. Here's Anna. We honestly were all really shocked because we were like, yeah, opening night didn't go perfectly. There were a lot of like funny mishaps and like also just straight up really, really unsafe and wild things that happened. But like we all felt like we were having a fun time. We didn't really realize that something was really, really wrong. And so it was really shocking and we all felt really panicked, really uncertain of what this meant. So we went to go hear them out and they told us a lot of information about a lot of things that happened behind the scenes that we were just not aware of. And we all kind we all kind of agreed that like, yeah, this is devastating and we really wanted this to work out. But if someone that you trust tells you that someone is dangerous and manipulative and doesn't care about the community that they are there to interact with. You need to take that seriously. So the rest of the opening staff followed suit, quitting their jobs at Doc Marie's and developing a set of demands to present to Olga and Dimitri as the Marie Equi Workers Collective. Me and the kitchen manager weren't part of the collective. Um, Not that we weren't like aware of what was happening, but it was made when people were still employed. So it was in a way, yeah, kind of like almost a bargaining collective. 
The group demanded that Olga be removed from any association, ownership, and equity of the bar, that 50% of ownership through sweat equity go to the kitchen manager, and the other 50% ownership through sweat equity go to Brandy. They wanted Dimitri to continue funding the bar as a silent investor for at least two more months until funds could be secured to purchase the business from them. What was the thinking behind demanding that the bar be turned over? I think for a lot of people, this was the furthest that they'd ever gotten in their, not just careers, but like hope and like dream, like finding a place where you felt the most aligned and the most seen and the most included and knowing that like you were going to have a team of people that represented who you were and you were going to be serving and having to interact with people every day that were going to understand you from a really like large perspective. They didn't want to let go of that initial dream of being part of this inclusive queer lesbian bar, but they also didn't want to work with Olga. I kind of thought it was possible. It really wouldn't have been the way that I wanted to open my or own my first bar or business. But I thought like if she agreed to it, if she felt like this is not good, like I see this writing on the wall, like this is not something I want to be affiliated. Like maybe I need to take a step like as Olga, like maybe I need to take a step back and realize like, do I need a bar or do I need a meditation center? So the Marie Equi Workers Collective met with Olga and Dimitri in front of the bar on Sunday, July 3rd to read these demands aloud. Then they presented them in written form via email that evening. They gave Olga and Dimitri 24 hours to respond. It was so out there and it was so honestly just crazy to us that we didn't feel like this was anything that we needed to interact with in any meaningful way, because how can you? Like, it's not staff asking for changes. It's them saying that, you know, we are so bad that we need to give over the bar to them. And maybe people don't know, but this is not how business ownership works. Me and my brother poured a ton of money, time and resources for a year leading up to opening into our LLC into the bar, into the space, all of the licenses, all of the things that you have to go through to open a bar. Um, it's, it's all in our name. This is our business, you know, and it's not something that can be given or transferred to someone, even if there was some kind of reason to do that. So it was something that was just so far out and devoid of any kind of logic or reason. And again, like it was an anonymous group. Not having gotten a response by the 24-hour deadline, the Marie Equi Workers Collective took to the internet. They posted the demands along with a set of grievances, many of which attacked Olga's character, centering around the accusation that she is, quote, an unsafe person. The first time we saw anything about the grievances was online with everyone else. The list of grievances included some objectively false or incomplete claims. For example, it says the owner failed to provide security. But Doc Marie's did have security on opening night. Two individual security people. 
They didn't have an established security team because they'd previously decided together with the managers to let go of the team Olga had originally contracted. And I learned all of this from Brandy herself. The contract had a non-compete, whatever, disclosure. So we couldn't hire like another company. So they had experience. The two individuals that were there did have experience, but it wasn't what we would have wanted. Here's another confusing grievance, a $15,000 pay discrepancy between the two managers, which Brandy already shared was resolved very early in their employment. Why was that on the list of complaints then if that was like immediately fixed when it was brought up to her? Yeah, I think it was more uh, about, I think maybe just to the effect of like, there's things that she followed up on and did, but also uh, it was like maybe to showcase just like what Olga's intentions or her decisions were. Perhaps the most troubling grievance is the allegation that, quote, the owner, while significantly intoxicated, enabled an openly racist aggressor, end quote. What we do know is that this stems from the fight between patrons on opening night, in which the aggressor was heard using the N-word to refer to a person of color involved in the fight. After, Olga was seen talking to the aggressor. So Olga was sitting on a picnic table, sort of resting like on top of the picnic table, and was holding one of the bar patrons that was intermittently sobbing and yelling outside the bar. But Cruising was not able to interview anyone else who witnessed the fight itself or the interaction between Olga and the aggressor. So this is all we really feel comfortable saying about this very serious matter. Olga alleges she was neither significantly intoxicated nor enabling anyone involved. Other grievances do point to some clearly documented safety concerns from opening night, such as electrical cords posing a tripping hazard in an area with flooding and water leaking through subfloor onto the patrons in the basement. In fact, an OSHA complaint was filed regarding these exact safety issues. But by reviewing Doc Marie's response to OSHA, as well as additional receipts from a plumber that was hired, we can confirm that both of these issues were promptly addressed in the weeks following the July 1st opening and were fixed by the time the bar reopened to the public. They also had to fix their payroll system, which did have issues as alleged by the collective. And of course, this is going to be a valid and pressing concern for staff. But again, based on the documents we reviewed, following opening, the owners were diligent about resolving payroll issues and paying staff for their correct hours. So we asked Olga, why had she never shared any of this proof that she was addressing all of these issues? No one asked. You guys were the only ones that asked. That's how I know that people are not searching for truth. People are not, you know, coming to have a conversation. All of the people that did want to know the truth, came in person to the bar, right? And they gave it a shot and they came and talked to me and they understood what was going on online was not reality. And yeah, I've given interviews to, you know, news outlets that have never asked for details and proof and things. You guys were the only ones. You, you know, I remember you asked me in the first interview, like, do you have any proof? I'm like, yeah, 
I have lots of proof. (laughs) Nobody wants to see it. It's true that the internet didn't seem particularly interested in sorting fact from fiction. Soon after the Marie Equi Workers Collective's initial posts went up on Instagram, other accusations began to circulate, including sweeping allegations of transphobia and racism. Here's Brandy. I don't think the collective alleged that she was racist and transphobic. Another rumor flying around was that the drag performers scheduled for the now-canceled Sunday brunch were never paid. That was another big issue that I had. This is Danica, a Portland community member who was at the initial opening. So they had their opening night, and then they were supposed to have a drag brunch. Um, That got canceled, and none of those drag queens got paid. A lot of community was like, um, no. And my partner at the time, she actually shared all of the drag queens' Venmos so that people could give them tips and money to kind of recoup that. Because that's their livelihood. and. I'm not good with a business messing with somebody else's livelihood like that. Compelling, right? Except they did get paid. We reached out to these performers ourselves and three confirmed that they did, in fact, receive their agreed-upon cancellation fees from Doc Marie's, $100 each. Proceeds from the brunch had been pledged to the Black Resilience Fund, so Dimitri also privately donated $2,000, a comparable amount, to the fund. This is exactly, you know, a great example of like, that's, that is mind blowing, right? And that's mind blowing to you. This is what I've lived with for 14 months, that level of insanity, that level of disconnect from reality. We know we paid everyone right away. They know they got paid. The online narrative is we never paid them. Clearly, no one was fact-checking the information circulating on the internet. And the backlash against Olga and Doc Marie's was swift and ruinous. It caught on and it caught on immediately. I received so much deep personal hate and malice. And, you know, my phone was completely buzzing off the hook at all times from all ends, like every kind of communication. I got death threats. And these were all things that came from within the community. So it was just the most harrowing, honestly, and disorienting feeling that you could ever, that I've ever experienced. And I don't wish it on anyone. And the amount of misinformation and lies and awfulness that, that I saw just balloon online was absolutely mind blowing. You know, I tried to immediately stay as far away from it as I can just for sanity and safety. Um, and focus on what I could control and what I could do. And, you know, just as an example, there was, you know, a person that I saw that was like, they fired all 20 of us and I work there. And I've never seen this person before in my life. Like these are just complete lies. And I think that once people get into that online mob mentality, that cancel culture kind of thing, there might be an element of like, well, the ends justify the means. So it's okay to be hateful. It's okay to be vile. It's okay to spread misinformation because they deserve it. But we didn't. And nobody does. I don't think that canceling is not a productive form of activism. It is blindly destroying something. And that's what we face. Would they try to completely destroy us? They decided that we should not exist as a business. 
And that went on for a while. Um, it really, really was one of the most awful things I've ever had to live through. And I absolutely don't wish it on anyone. Olga's approach has kind of always been to ignore criticism that she finds baseless. But a lot of people were angry that she still hadn't apologized for any of the collective's accusations, including Danica. And instead, you're blocking people that say, hey, you should apologize. Like, if you apologize, the lesbian community in the city will back you again. Like, I got blocked on Instagram for that. It's like, okay. That is a really dangerous area to go down, to be bullied, harassed, slandered into giving a public apology for something that we did not do and are not responsible for, I don't think is a good idea. And it was such a crazy thing that we honestly didn't want to legitimize it by interacting with it as if it was a real thing. Does that make sense? But the comments kept rolling in, many much more aggressive than what Danica is describing. In response, Olga turned off Instagram comments on the Doc Marie's page. This angered people even more. People in that same ends justify the means uh, way were not only attacking me, they were personally attacking online my staff. They were attacking customers. And so for a long time, we had our comments turned off for that reason. And then if someone crosses the line into misinformation, bullying, harassment, or any kind of things like that, then I do block their account because that's not allowed. That's not okay. You know, the same way that if someone is harassing someone in 3D in my bar, I will ask them to leave. It's the same, same energy online. Ultimately, the Marie Equi Workers Collective faced their own set of trolls and hate comments. Here's Anna, one of the members. We don't know who it was, is the scariest part. Someone in the group who had access to our Google Drive with all of our notes, meeting notes, had given that information to a podcast with a turf fan base and with a lot of really trans-exclusionary messaging in their podcast. Not long after The Collective posted for the first time, an episode of the Radical podcast, Blocked and Reported, aired a segment on Doc Marie's and its former staff. This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, would you say that we have a humdinger today? Yes, today the hum is going to ding. Katie Herzog and Jesse Single are cisgender podcast hosts perhaps most notable for their coverage of transgender issues. They've been called gender critical at best and outright transphobic at worst. I refer to them as cisgender here because whenever they talk about a trans person on their podcast, they make sure to label the person as trans. So I can only assume they would want to be identified in this way as well. You're going to talk about a meltdown where you were leaked minutes of a tense meeting. Yeah, I'm very excited about this one. It's more or less the Pentagon Papers, I would say. We're breaking this story. Seemingly, someone from within the Marie Equi Workers Collective had leaked notes and documents to this podcast, which the hosts then spend about 15 minutes of the episode reading aloud and discussing, referencing members by name, and publicly outing one individual as trans. 
this isn't how anything works. Jesse, you know, the bar had been open go, for one day. It had been open for one day. We demand, we demand we own it within two months. Yes, yes. Oh my God, yeah. this is so crazy. And then on July 19th, 2022, Libs of TikTok shared a post titled, Lesbian Bar Shuts Down One Week After Opening Because They Weren't Woke Enough. For those of you not familiar with Libs of TikTok, it ironically is no longer a TikTok account. They were permanently banned in March of 2022. But the handle at Libs of TikTok is still very active on X, formerly known as Twitter, Instagram, and the substack libsoftiktok.com. And there are plenty of reasons for queer people to fear their attention. Libs of TikTok are being tracked by the Anti-Defamation League as one of the biggest online amplifiers of anti-LGBTQ plus extremism. They've been called an anti-LGBTQ plus hate machine by Them Magazine, and they've been blamed for bomb threats on children's hospitals and university LGBTQ plus groups. Needless to say, this exposed the Marie Equi Workers Collective to waves of online hate. Because our information was released, we were flooded with hate. And there were several trans women in that group who were named by name in the meeting notes, and they became uh, targets. And they were receiving hate and they were receiving death threats. It's really, really heartbreaking because someone from our own group did that. And like, really, we really don't have any idea who it was. So like, it's scary. It's scary. People with a lot of hate in them can look just like me. And you don't know, you don't always know someone. So that was a pretty jarring experience for a lot of us. And it was especially very, very hard on the trans women of that group. According to Brandy, this is the reason it's been so difficult to get people from the collective to talk to us. It was mocking at best. It was threatening. Just really hateful. Just ugly and hateful and intense. It just made everyone feel completely violated and very unsafe. But we don't want you to get the wrong idea about what happened at Doc Marie's. It can't just be written off as a product of PC culture or hyper-liberalism, as the Blocked and Reported podcast or Libs of TikTok will have you believe. For one, queer infighting like this has been around for even longer than the internet itself. I had heard from people older than myself, from LGBTQ people older than myself, a lot of messaging of like, all you kids want to do is argue with each other online, all you want to do is pick each other apart. Um, you're, you know, eating your own and you're not uniting to fight the real enemy. This is journalist Shane O'Neill. I think there's truth in that. I think that there is a lot of infighting that is happening, especially that you see online because of just the way the media works. But I will say that when I started looking into Stonewall, I was kind of relieved to see that, like, there's always been factionalism in the LGBTQ movements. We reached out to him because of an article he wrote for The New York Times back in 2019. It was called... Who threw the first brick at Stonewall? Let's argue about it. In my research, it seems like infighting is constant in queer organizing from the very beginning of what we would now call queer organizing. Infighting is a part of being queer, and any identity-based organization is going to have disagreements about what path people should be moving towards. In any sort of identity-based movement, there's going to be a push and pull between respectability politics and radicalism. 
when there were marches on Washington, some of the early homophile marches, people insisted that all the women wear dresses and all the men wear suits. Um, and smaller factions of people were like, why do we have to conform to this particular idea? Part of the process of being LGBTQ is arguing with people that you love and care about and people that you are ultimately allied with. And that that's been happening since these at the very beginning of these movements. Shane has a theory on why we as queer people seem to be so good at arguing with each other. Being LGBTQ and realizing that you are means that you're inherently noticing something about yourself and noticing that it doesn't fit with a dominant society. And that primes you to question things more broadly in the rest of your life. So I think there's a de facto sort of suspicion or curiosity about the rules and um, existing structures that you're born into. And I think that that can give way to being more open to try to change and perfect things that you think are not working for you or your community. We have better critical thinking skills (laughs) than other people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have even known we were queer. And then when it comes to queer spaces... We as LGBT people care so much about our culture and care so much about our community and care so much about the venues that support and engender community that I think these things have greater significance than maybe straight people understand. (laughs) The internet's impact on queer communities, queer spaces, and yes, even on queer arguments cannot be denied. I think it has changed the way that we argue, and I think it's changed the tenor of our arguments, and I think it's made people dig their heels in in a way that I think maybe wasn't happening before. You communicate differently online when you don't have context of a person's face and tone of voice, and when you're not um, seeing them as a whole person, kind of literally, like like even now, you know, we're communicating with video chat, but you can't see my whole body, you can't smell my sister's basement, you you know, you're, there's a bunch of information that you're not getting that you're sort of left to sort of imagine. And I think that the your view can get narrower and narrower, and that can make a person feel surer and surer of what the other person's intention is without it being stated. So why did the collective turn to the internet in the first place? I asked Anna and Brandy. I felt like it would be putting more people in danger to just quit and walk away and pretend like nothing was wrong. So we could have just quit quietly. We could have just quit, but we decided not to do that. I think it was important to the collective, to the to the employees involved, that they were seen for who they were. Like just that they were just seen, I think. I mean, this is like a city that is focused on employee rights on being open and honest um, and like activism and speaking up and speaking out. So like the majority of people there, you know, really wanted to hold Olga accountable, becoming a collective and being employees and grieving, like putting out your grievances is a way to do that. It's also something that could have gotten them in a lot of trouble. We absolutely had the choice to sue them for this is pure slander. You know, this is not facts. This is with the intention of defaming us and did successfully and cause material damage. Um, and that was something that we considered for a while and ultimately decided was not the route we wanted to go, was not, you know, going to help, was not 
we don't want their money. <laughs> you know, we, we just wanted to move on from the entire situation. Instead of focusing her energy on suing or retaliating or even debunking these allegations online, Olga unplugged from the internet and turned her attention to rebuilding. The bar was shut down for just over six weeks after the initial opening night. And during this time, Olga addressed the legitimate issues that were present. And what does Brandy think about all of this? I mean, it sucks. It was really irritating. Just like, oh, yeah, of course now. Like, this is going to happen. You're going to fix all of the things that we wanted to fix. I would love to think that, like, she, Olga took things more seriously and is providing all the things that need, need provided. I mean, it's not a witch hunt for me. And I'm not saying that I think it's a witch hunt for other people, but I allege and what I allege and I am going to like state my experience. And I hope that a lot of people found like happiness in, in going there and continuing to go there. But we know for a fact, a major change Brandy was pushing for never came to fruition. I've run this bar for 14 months with no issue and the floors don't need to be sealed. There was no need. It was the manager's opinion that they needed to be, but they, they're perfectly fine the way they are. In their perspective, this is something I failed to do. In my perspective, I evaluated the situation and found out that it's something that didn't need to happen. And they had quit in the middle of, of that process. Perhaps the biggest change at Dog Marie's pre-verse-post-initial opening is that Olga quit her other job. That was a really big life decision that I had to make and decide where my priorities were. And I quit my other job shortly before opening um, and decided to devote all of my time to the bar. I took on many other jobs and responsibilities throughout this last like year and a half almost. I kind of learned as I went and then as I was able to make more, take on more responsibility, I did. I plan all of our events. Uh, I manage our staff. I bartend three to five days a week. I manage our budgets. I run our socials. And of course, Olga had to hire an entirely new team of staff including Andrene, the Portland local whom we met back at the beginning of the episode. You know, my first week I was just like, let me keep an eye, you know, watch, you know, what's going on. But um, after that, after like a month, I was like, oh, yeah, love it here. I love everyone here. If you remember, Andrene spent a lot of time asking Olga about all of the accusations before agreeing to work there. I was just asking, I mean, essentially the questions that I saw online um, as far as, you know, making sure that the space wasn't, you know, transphobic, or just pretty much everything down to, you know, why was there, I think there was an online saying that there was leaky water on the floor and just like, why was that? Or literally, I just wanted to address everything. Olga is extremely open and very honest and will anything that you want to know, she will tell you anything that you want proof of, she'll show you. So I with that, I just immediately gained trust. After over a year at Doc Marie's, Andrene actually left the bar this fall. She accepted a manager position at another bar she was working at and says she left on very good terms. She visits docks frequently and fondly remembers her time there. I couldn't wait for people to come in and see the space and be like, oh, not believe the internet drama come in and be like, okay, oh, wow, this is, 
this is cool. I like that. And that has happened a lot. There's people who will come in, they'll be like, oh, so tell me about this and all that. And then, you know, they're just kind of like snooping and trying to see what's going on. But then I see them next week and I'm like, oh, so you like to hear it. That's awesome. Cruising is independently reported and produced by a small but mighty team of three. Story producer and social media manager Rachel Karp, line producer and resident road trip driver Jen McGinnity, and story producer and audio engineer me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. Thank you to our sponsors, Olivia Travel and Honda. You can find Cruising at our website, cruisingpod.com, on social media at cruisingpod, and at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Listen to Cruising wherever you get your podcasts. Oh,